And we have the pleasure of having Representative Marsha Blackburn, who represents the 7th Congressional District in Tennessee. We're going to have a conversation about uh, why she's running for re-election, some of her priorities, and the things that she's proud of during her career in Congress. Thank you very much, Congressman, for joining us. It's good to be with you. Thank you. Well, tell us a little bit about, for our viewers who are new to, to town, tell us a little bit about yourself and the reason that you first ran for Congress and, and what keeps you want to keeping you want to serve. Right. I, I certainly have always been involved with the community process. Mm -hmm. And my husband and I very involved, going back into the late 70s, in Williamson County and Brentwood, and involved with the Republican Party there, standing it up, growing the Republican Party in Middle Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And never thought I would be a candidate. And then lo and behold, one day my name, you know, I'm running for office myself rather than helping somebody else run. I served four years in the state senate. During that time in the state senate, I led the battle against a state income tax imposition of that on our state. We were successful in fighting that back. Uh, I think it's a big reason that uh, Tennessee is so business friendly and so highly rated as a business friendly state and one of the reasons that our legislature has kept that balanced budget in place and has they've done a great job being fiscally responsible. I went to Congress in 2002 and uh, when I arrived in Congress, I decided to do a songwriter's caucus. We have lots of different caucuses in Congress. And I realized that there was a need to educate people on the value of intellectual property and on the constitutional underpinning for protecting uh, intellectual property. So I started a songwriter's caucus. It is bicameral. It is bipartisan. And um, today even continues, and Nashville Songwriters Association has been very helpful to come and help educate uh, other members on, on the issues. My interest grew out of um, my love of music. I, uh, I am a, a pianist by training. Uh, also, a little pipe organ, a little guitar, a little ukulele, but nothing the caliber of our great musicians here in Nashville, and uh, then serving as the head of the Tennessee Film Entertainment and Music Commission at one point as we re really repositioned that during Governor Sunquist's first term, 95 to 98, to go from just a film office to being a um, an economic development entity, making Nashville and Tennessee a destination, not just a location when it comes to entertainment, entertainment product. In Congress, um, I have been very busy with, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> pardon me, my committee, Energy and Commerce. I serve as the vice chairman, and we not only cover energy issues and commerce, <coughs> pardon me, and trade issues, but uh, we cover telecommunications and the internet and healthcare. So it is the oldest standing committee in Congress. We have the widest jurisdiction, and about 65% of the House's legislation comes through us. Mm -hmm. 
Very good. Uh, you, you've worked a lot on uh, intellectual property and use of creators' rights. And could you talk a little bit about the state of where some of this these, uh, legislation is going? Yeah, I'll be happy to. I actually uh, brought a list so I would get all my numbers right. Uh, the BOTS Act, Better Online Ticket Sales, it is H.R. 5104. That is past the House. It is finishing up in the Senate. And we look forward to having that signed into law very soon. Um, it was bipartisan in the House, uh, came out of the House on a voice vote. It, um, in the Senate, it has been carried by Senators Schumer and Moran. And they are finishing uh, the work on this. And the BOTS Act will uh, help handle the situations that exist when all of the bots, the hacking software, goes in and buys up, scoops up all the tickets for concerts, for performances, uh, for musicals and plays, or for ball games, and then you try to buy a ticket and the nosebleed is all that is left once that website thaws, you know. So this is, we have worked and have heard from so many of our constituents who tour, they're entertainers and they, they tour, or they're individuals that manage tours, and they would say something needs to be done about this because the, the fan, the individual, is being priced out of the marketplace. And that, so we have this legislation that will put in place some penalties and the ability for the FTC to do some enforcement against the individuals and the companies, the entities that utilize this hacking software. And another uh, aspect of, of your committee's work revolves around broadband and internet. And, that uh, is, that's correct, mm -hmm. quite a bit of it. The Internet Freedom Act, which I've had for about three years and looking for that bill number now, that is H.R. 1212, and that would prohibit the F. CC from moving forward with the net neutrality hmm. rules. Net neutrality would be government having control of the nexus. They would precede your ISP in control of the internet. And when that happens, government has the ability to dictate speeds and to assign priority and value to content. And we think that is better left to the marketplace hmm. to do that. So. Uh, we've had tremendous support uh, with the Internet Freedom Act. I also have led in the House on blocking the FCC and Department of Commerce from ceding control of ICANN and IANA, Internet Corporation for Names and Numbers. But giving that over to the multi-stakeholder process, uh, the Internet, you know, when you go back and look at the inception, of the internet. It was a DARPA project and you had four computers in four different entities, Nevada and Utah and a couple in California. And the teams that worked around those, the engineers that were working on this, were working to take this machine, as it was at that point, and to develop a open source backbone for information transfer. And then the government, as it moved to the point that it was ready for commercialization, it moved into the Department of Commerce. Mm -hmm. And that is where it has been housed with the Assistant Secretary in the Department of Commerce. Uh, the Internet's not broken, doesn't need to be fixed, doesn't need government from the FCC on the net neutrality size, and it doesn't need the multi-stakeholder process mm -hmm. for 
for ICANN and IANA. And we think that is a resource that is developed by the U.S. taxpayer with taxpayer funds. And it has worked well and has continued to be uh, open source and really a free speech mechanism, not only for us in the U.S., but around the globe. And so there has been bipartisan opposition to the administration conducting that transfer to the multi-stakeholder process, having it uh, overseen by the UN, or um, having other countries weighing in on our free speech and our um, utilization of the internet, and certainly from we would rather keep it free from the pressures of the International Telecommunications Union. So uh, we have sought to block that. I've been very aggressive uh, in trying to block that. We, um, the trigger was activated on October 1st. We are still seeking, as we go back in November, to find a way to halt that uh, transfer so that it does not proceed and leave the Department of Commerce. This morning I heard a story on NPR about former Tennessee Representative Cordell Hull, former Secretary of State, who believed that world peace could come through commerce and trade. And you've written about issues of trade as well, and certainly in the, in the news, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific right. Partnership has been there. Have, how have your thoughts about trade, uh, uh, how have they developed over the years, and, and uh, how do you see the path that America should take? Because certainly Tennessee, as we know, it, you know, it has a lot of foreign direct investment, be it from Japan or from Canada or other places. Right. Uh, exports have grown tremendously in Tennessee, and I find that uh, my constituents have a very good grasp on trade, whether it is uh, inter uh, entertainment product mm -hmm. or agriculture product, um, and then also manufactured mm -hmm. product. So there is a good grasp there. There have been growing concerns over the last several years about piracy, whether it was entertainment product, uh, voice or video, uh, whether it was uh, art or photography. Uh, people were concerned about piracy in China. And of course, China wants to be a market economy, but we need them to respect our intellectual property. And so as we would look at trade, what I started hearing from people, and we're all seeing this manifested this year with opposition to the TPP, people felt that the trade agreements should be more well-defined and that there should be an element of fairness for the American worker. Uh, I join so many of my constituents who are quite frustrated that many of the jobs that previously were held here have been moved offshore where it is less expensive to manufacture. Many times that is because of regulation that drives the cost of manufacturing up, whether it is EPA or OSHA or tax regulation. So there is a frustration. Um, I think the way you will see trade agreements in the future work is they will be smaller, more, uh, more, of, more bilateral agreements where we work in conjunction with a singular country or maybe a couple of countries in a particular area. And I, I think that uh, you will see more intellectual property protections. You know, David, it's interesting to me, 80% of the export-connected jobs in this state are uh, intellectual property 
based. So it behooves us to be good stewards of protecting those intellectual property rights. Very good. Mm -hmm. I'd like to turn to uh, an issue that you're very passionate about that we've spoken about before, which is the Infant Lives Panel. And yeah. uh, you've, uh, it's, it's been so almost going to be a year, I think. Since almost a year, yes. We are uh, entering the final phase of uh, the investigative panel. As we said the last time I was here, uh, our job is to investigate and to gather the information. Mm -hmm. uh, it revolves around Title 42 U.S. Code 289 G2. And that is the statute that was put in place uh, by a, an amendment and a bill mm -hmm. from Congressman John Dingell and Congressman Henry Waxman, both Democrats. And it was on to the NIH Reauthorization Act in 93. That is what explicit provides specificity and explicit wording that it is illegal to sell a human body part in the United States. Mm -hmm. And with the growth of some of these um, businesses that were selling uh, fetal parts, then that is what drove the establishment of the panel. We have held some hearings. We have issued uh, subpoenas. We have conducted depositions, are continuing during the month of October to conduct some final depositions and to build out our report. What we are determined to do is to establish if there has been a violation of the law. And how did that end up happening when it is, it's a 10-year felony to make a profit off the sale of a body part or a tissue. The, the educational process on this has been really quite amazing and it has just been a blessing to be the chairman of the select committee. And I've heard from so many researchers and individuals that are um, passionately involved in the organ donor program. And they are very concerned that a for-profit industry, as one of them termed it, a shadow market, has grown up because our transplant programs have uh, benefited from having a very strict process through the organ donor programs. Organ donor programs are something that individuals understand. And then to learn that there is a for-profit entity that has come into existence for uh, for fluids and cell lines and tissues and organs is quite troubling to many people that work in that arena. So we, we have a great staff. Our um, chief counsel and um, a committee chief uh, was very involved in standing up the trafficking division at DOJ mm -hmm. uh, under previous administrations and had recently retired. And I asked him to come back out of retirement and to help us with this uh, project so that we would have his wisdom and his guidance. Uh, he did. We have some good investigators that are on it. We have a forensic accountant that has worked. We have a scientist who has worked as a part of the team to make certain that we kept our focus appropriate. Um, we've held two hearings. One was on the ethics of fetal tissue research. We have secured information from NIH. and. What is so interesting to me, uh, very seldom do they use fresh fetal tissue any longer. Um, primarily, what they are using 
is the cell lines and uh, fluids and uh, the amniotic fluid. Um, NIH, only one in every 100,000 projects are they using a fresh fetal tissue. So uh, to go back and to look at um, what the transition has been, we had a couple of vaccines early on 50, 60 years ago that came from fetal tissue lines. Really there has been nothing significant from a fresh fetal tissue line since that point in time. So it's it's been a, a an amazing education process. Our committee has done a tremendous work and I um, have been honored to lead that work. Thank you. Um, one thing I want to talk to you about too is that you have played a very prominent role during the Republican National Convention this yes. year, having a speech on, on a Thursday night, the, the night right, that, uh, yeah. that nominee Donald J. Trump spoke uh, right. that evening. Tell me a little bit about your role in uh, in this election, on sure. the campaign, and, and your case for Donald Trump? Uh, I'll be happy to do that. You know, it's so interesting. I didn't endorse anyone in the primary, and I felt like that the voters needed to, to be able to look at the candidates, how incredible it was that we had a field of 17 individuals on our side that stood up and said, you know, we, we want to put our hat in the ring and we want to be a candidate, and I thought that was quite remarkable. And it has driven a lot of energy and excitement. Um, once it was decided, it was apparent that Mr. Trump was going to be the nominee, I uh, came out with my endorsement of him. Uh, I, I said, you know, he's, he's the guy that is going to carry the banner for the party. I'm not going to agree with him on everything. Uh, he's going to be closest to me in agreement, and as Reagan said, my 80% uh, friend is not a 100% enemy, uh, just because someone disagrees with you 20% of the time. And uh, it has been, um, it's been an honor to be out there and to represent that campaign, to serve as a surrogate for, for that campaign. I believe Mr. Trump is so correct in looking at the issues of national security. That is the number one issue. The FBI has told us there are terrorist cells in all 50 states. We need to begin to look at this issue as both a foreign and domestic issue. And um, we have epidemics of opioids and heroin. Uh, when I was in New Hampshire a few weeks ago, uh, they were saying, you know, you need to secure the southern border because of what is transpiring on that border with heroin it moving into and adulterated drugs, watered-down drugs that are moving into our country. So the southern border needs to be secured. I have lots of friends and friends from church who are very involved with uh, stopping sex trafficking, which is modern-day slavery. And they many times will say, we need to find an answer to securing that southern border and knowing who is coming in the country because many times these young girls and boys are being brought in here for purposes that are not honorable. And they're going into gangs or they're going into human trafficking rings or sex trafficking rings. And it is that is a human tragedy, an absolute tragedy. So those security issues are very prevalent. And I think, David, that people see these many times play out in their communities when they see the opioids and the drugs and the heroin. And so they want our country secured. Second is jobs in the economy. And wage stagnation is a problem in many 
parts of our state and also around the country. People want to see growth in the economy. They want to see wage growth. They're frustrated that there is not uh, wage growth. They're also frustrated by the $20 trillion worth of debt that is on our children and our grandchildren. I think it's immoral. That's why I fight every Congress to make certain that I'm doing my part to push back against the expansion of the deficit for that year and therefore the accrued debt that is upon us. So uh, you'll probably be agreeable to a, a Donald Trump victory on November 8th. Yes. Uh, if Hillary Clinton wins on November 8th, how do you see your role? Because it's likely that, that at least the House of Representatives will stay in Republican hands and most likely that the Senate will also stay in Republican That's right. hands. That's right. You're right. Uh, most likely the House and the Senate will stay with Republican control. And if Mrs. Clinton were to win the election, I don't think she will. But if she would, you know, we continue to push to make certain that uh, the things that come out of the House are as conservative as we can possibly make them. And to fight back against bad policy. Uh, block and tackle is a lot of what we have done over the last eight years to be able to push back and to halt some of the regulation that has come, come at us and has come at our Tennessee companies. And one of the big uh, topics that affects this community is, is health care and health care insurance and, uh, and also subsidies for uncompensated care. Right. Uh, Insure Tennessee really never saw the light of day really, right. uh, last year, although it continues to become an issue of how do you cover um, the working poor individual here in Tennessee, which is uh, seems to be about 300,000, and this requires both federal and state cooperation. Do you have ideas as to how you would like to see You know, I do, and um, I appreciate the question. It actually came up this morning. I was over at the Board of Realtors mm -hmm. and speaking with them, and they were talking about the impact, the cost of health care, the escalation rates in the insurance and also in health care, what that does to people that are out shopping for a house and trying to buy, buy a house. It's a very timely, it's an economic issue question. And... I, I think Tennessee is probably a little bit ahead of the rest of the country because we had the um, the impact of Tennessee of TenCare felt on our state early, and of course it ballooned in cost in the first five years. It quadrupled in cost, and then Governor Bradison and you know the income tax battle. We really fought it because of that, and then Governor Bradison. It did a, a very respectable job with coming in and changing that program and right-sizing that program. The way it is currently constructed, I don't think that you're going to see the Affordable Care Act um, stay in place as it is. The insurance companies are moving away from it because the product is too expensive to afford. Uh, the deductibles are too high for families. Now they're spending maybe $12,000 a year on health insurance and their, uh, their deductible before they hit that max, they're at $8,000. And they're, basically the insurance ends up being old major medical you know, that uh, supposedly we had gotten away from. So a more affordable pro product needs to be in the marketplace. Now, there are some things, and we have replacement bills for Obamacare. One of those concepts is my legislation, which is a cross-state line purchase of health insurance. Uh, 
and it has been talked about uh, time and again. It is a big part of the solution to solving the problem of the high cost of insurance. Open up the marketplace. Let people out beyond the state borders. Let them buy something they can afford and get a product that they want and then use that product. And we have worked on that legislation now for seven years. It is in good shape. It is. Um, it would meet the standards for the Department of Insurance and the uh, state of domicile of the insurance company and also the state of residence for the purchaser uh, through that Department of Insurance. And we, we think that's a, a big part of getting that cost down. Liability and is an issue addressing the tort issues. We have done some things at the state level. Our legislature has been responsible in that regard. Uh, the federal level, we need to have some tort reforms. That is an important part of that. When it comes to the Medicaid portion, we're hearing from state legislatures, Democrat and Republican, what they would like for us to do is just block grant Medicaid back to the states. Let them handle it. Get the federal government out of that mix. Our states and our cities and our counties know better how to deliver that needed service. And they will do a better job of it because they're closest to the need and get the federal government out of it. And I think that we've come to a point where, yes, that is a discussion that we need to have and that would be also a part of the solution. Well, we're coming to the end of our interview. Are there any topics that we haven't discussed that you'd like to talk about? Well, we've, we've got some uh, great provisions that are moving forward. The last time I was here, we talked about the Software Act, which is healthcare informatics, and that has passed through the House. We put it in the 21st Century Cures Bill, mm -hmm. which is there to uh, spur research at the NIH. And the bill is now with Senator Alexander and the, his committee in the Senate. And we are uh, thrilled with the progress of that bill. We think that the 21st Century Cures and the Software Act included in it will come out of the Senate in early November, and we will be to conference on that soon. We're continuing to work the Songwriters' Equity Act and the Performance Rights Act. Um, those are both moving forward. When you look at songwriters retaining their copyright and, and then equal treatment for payment of the product that they produce, as well as the performers who, you know, they're making nothing on terrestrial radio play and they need to be compensated. But looking at these different delivery methods for music and beginning to look at end use. Is it something you just are listening to? Is it something you capture in whole? Is it something used for commercial purposes? And normalizing some rates and making certain our creative community is appropriately paid. We, we're working on those. I also have the Preventive Service Task Force Bill. This is important. And it's Breast Cancer Month, so it's very appropriate that we talk about, about this one. Um, preventive Service Task Forces are the entities within Health and Human Services that inform uh, the Secretary as to the decisions they make. Uh, many people started hearing about the task forces when there were changes in um, the regulations for mammography that you didn't, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be paid before age 50 and then wouldn't be paid after age 75. 
And uh, that was a recommendation that had come out of the um, USPSTF. And then it started with prostate cancer for men. So Congressman Rush has joined me on this bill. Uh, so it is a completely bipartisan bill. We have been given a hearing and markup on our bill uh, when we go back in November. And what this will do is require those task forces to have individuals who are not political appointees, but who are specialists in that area of health care. So that you are making uh, informed decisions by learned intermediaries, if you will, uh, individuals that are specialists in that area of medicine. So we're looking forward uh, to getting that ready ready to move forward. So we should wind up some pretty good bills by the end of the year with bots and with USPSTF with software and 21st Century Cures. And then also there is an energy bill that is in process. It is passed out of the House. And the uh, Blackburn-Schrader language, again, bipartisan, this deals with building codes. It's important to our uh, cities and our counties. It would prohibit the EPA from coming in and overriding those building codes and driving up the cost of housing in an area. And as we all look at the cost of housing, this is something that is a bipartisan concern in Congress. And so um, that, let, that language passed out of the House and the Senate, and it's now in conference. And we are hopeful that that gets signed. Very good. One thing that just occurred to me, because you had mentioned uh, opioid epidemic, opioid crisis just right. a few minutes ago, uh, the CARE Act was passed um, over the summer. Uh, I think one concern that I've heard from local providers is that the funding mechanism wasn't there that uh, or, or sufficient funding. What is your, your thought in terms of whether or not it was a good bill, and, and how do we address those uh, funding shortfalls that, uh, that providers the, I I think that what we will do is we get into the process of working through the minibuses at the end of the year is look at what the funding is going to be there. Addressing the opioid epidemic is something we needed to do. Likewise, uh, the mental health bill, which I've been one of those working with Dr. Tim Murphy, one of our members out of Pennsylvania, uh, we have pushed forward on the mental health bill. That is past the House and is in the Senate, and we're trying to push that to completion. But David, you know, as you look at those bills with the drugs, and you also need to look at the mental health bill. Hmm. And um, then as you look at 21st Century Cures and the NIH, the FDA, and CMS, and what CMS is going to pay for, all of these issues become related. The point is we want to make certain people have access to affordable health care. We also want to make certain that some of these needs, uh, individuals that are needing mental health beds, that there is a way that we're going to be able to meet those needs. Uh, we're so short of the behavioral health beds, and it is a, such a sad situation as you visit with law enforcement and your jailers, and uh, they talk about that our city streets and our jails have become many times the homes for those that have severe mental illness, and we need to make certain they're getting the care they need and that they are in a safe place and that they are being uh, watched and cared for appropriately. So that would be one of the goals in that vein. 
Thank you very much. Any final thank words you. for our viewers before we conclude? Can't think of anything, but thank you so much. Well, thank you. We thank our viewers. This is our final interview of our three-week process, and uh, the most important thing right now is to make sure that you're registered to vote. You can register to vote in the state of Tennessee through October 11th. Uh, early voting goes from October 19th through November 3rd, and remember the election is November 8th. So please be an That's active right. and engaged citizen. Thank you very much, Congressman Blackburn. Oh, thank you we so much. We appreciate your time. Sure.